Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and baptized by John, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at what your spirit, as we consider what your spirit has superintended at the hand of Luke, or excuse me, Mark, as we look at what Mark has written here for the church, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would give us ears to hear what He is saying to His church. That we would see Your Son for who He is, the Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant, and the Son of God, the one on whom You have set Your love from eternity. Father, we pray that in this He would be exalted, You would be exalted. Your Spirit would be at work among us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember when I was a rather young and immature Christian, unaware of the beauty of our triune Lord. I remember it um, actually in quite descriptive ways. I remember living in my first house summer of 1998. I remember the time period. And I was in the backyard with an across-the-street neighbor, and we were working on my air conditioner unit. And he was a part of a oneness Pentecostal church. In other words, a church that denies the Trinity. And I was talking to him, and I said, well, what's the difference between your church and my church? And he looked at me and said, well, I, we still believe in one God, and we believe the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God, but, but we don't we just believe he was the Father, then the Son, and now is the Holy Spirit. And, and I said, oh, well, we believe in the Trinity, that God is one and that he's three persons at the same time. And he said, yeah, but we, we both love Jesus. And I said, yeah, we do. So I guess it's not important. And I remember going into my house thinking, um, I don't know if it's important, 
but maybe I just compromised in a pretty significant way that's damning to my neighbor. I'm not sure. Maybe it is important. Maybe it's not. I remember not too long after that, in September of 1998, I was helping with the Bible club at South High School. I was a teacher there, and I was outspoken as a Christian on campus, and one of my students came up to me, he was a 16-year-old, and he started asking me questions about the Lord, and I wasn't particularly helpful as he was asking me to show him in the Bible where I get my information, and I told him I'm not that familiar with the Bible at the end of the day. Um, I'd love to be of help. What you're saying sounds wrong to me, but I'm not quite sure why. And he looked at me, 16 years old, looked at me as a teacher and says, don't you think if you're going to hold yourself up as a Christian teacher on this campus, you ought to know more about your faith? And I thought to myself, yes, because I should. And so I looked at him and I said to him, I said, well, do you know where, where I might learn more? And he said, how about your church? I said, well, I've been there already and here's what I got. So anyway, I, <clears throat> I went that Sunday and saw that what was being advertised was an opportunity to go to a Bible conference in the church bulletin. You know, I started scouring the church bulletin going, what can I do to learn more? And so I found in the church bulletin an advertisement to go to a Bible conference. It was actually called a Ligonier Conference. After Ligonier, Pennsylvania, it's a Ligonier Ministries. And I, Ligonier sounded like a disease to me. <laughs> but it said Bible conference, and so I thought, Okay, um, I'll go ask if I can go. So I went and asked, and they said, yes, sure, you can come. And so I went, and I heard these men preach. I, I remember, I didn't know who any of them were, but um, guys, the guys' names at the time, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Jerry Bridges and Sinclair Ferguson, and I could, there were more. And I was going, I don't know who these men are, but, but as they opened the Word, they were preaching a conference. This was the fall of 98, I think in October, um, they were preaching a conference on the love of God. I thought, well, this is something I could learn more about, the love of God. And as they were going through the texts, they began to talk about the inner Trinitarian love of God. Now, that was something I hadn't thought about before. And I still remember quite well, they were talking about the fact that the eternal father has eternally loved his son, his eternal son, and he has given his son the gift of the church. And I, I still remember as I was sitting there, understanding maybe 50% of what they were talking about, but knowing that what I was missing and not understanding was really important and good stuff I needed to learn, right? But as I sat there not understanding most of what they were talking about, thinking I better go to the bookstore and buy a whole bunch of these books and start reading them, I remember hearing John 17, 24 and being stunned. Father, I desire, this is Jesus praying. Father, here's the son addressing his father. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now that stunned me that Jesus was actually praying that for his whole church. He's praying to the Father on behalf of his people. Here I hear Jesus, the Son of God, speaking to the Father, the eternal Son, speaking to the eternal Father, the Messiah, speaking to his God. I hear him speaking on my behalf as a member of his church, praying and asking him that I might be with him where he is. Why? 
so that I could see his glory, the glory he had with the Father because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And I was stunned. And it suddenly occurred to me that the Father loved the Son and the Son shared the glory of the Father before the foundation of the world, that God was eternally one in three, three in one, and that the three persons of God loved one another and had great glory and joy apart from the creation, prior to the creation. It stunned me that, that the creation was not necessary for them. God didn't need us. Now, that might surprise you, but in 1998, that was the first time I considered that. I had sort of the, you know, touched by an angel theology. Remember that show? <laughs> of course, God just needs us. He's just gushing all over the place in his eternal neediness for our, our creation. Why, why did he create it? He's lonely. He needed us, and so I'd never considered the idea he didn't. That saving us was not necessary for God either. He has no need of us. The triune Lord is not changed by us. He isn't improved by us. His glory is not increased because of us. You understand that? It doesn't matter how many people in the world are saved and how many people in the world as a result of being saved are glorifying God, you are not increasing his glory. It's just more people recognizing what is eternally true. He doesn't need our love. The glory and joy and love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is infinitely full before there's any creation or any redemption. And this truth suddenly shook out of me a man-centered gospel and a man-centered Christian life. I realized that the Lord didn't what he did for his own glory, and because his glory cannot be increased, then that means glorifying himself in creation and redemption is actually for our good. Since the Lord already knew perfect love and joy, then the creation redemption of us is out of the overflow of his love and joy for us. In other words, God's glory is ultimately even for our good. And I felt my heart burn within me. I remember, I felt like I had an Emmaus Road experience at that conference. I went out and bought all the books that my friends said were worth buying in the bookstore, and I started reading them. And I went from being pretty wildly ignorant to realizing that I was being called to preach the gospel. Went to seminary, and it's never stopped, by the way. That wasn't a mountaintop experience. I feel like it was a conversion almost. I thought, did I become a Christian at that conference? I told R.C. Sproul when I met him one time, who's no, just quickly, it's not like we're friends. You know how they're at conferences and they walk around. I said hello. Anyway, <laughs> that's it. He wouldn't remember me. But I remember telling him when I met him, I, 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 he's no Pentecostal. I jokingly looked at him. I said, you know, I had a second baptism of the Holy Spirit under your preaching. And he laughed. I, I don't know how to explain what happened to me that day, except I, I assume I was called to ministry. And my whole view of Christianity was reshaped. I ended up in seminary, and, and, and I'm here as a result. Scholar and author Michael Reeves states well what the Trinity is and what the truth of the Trinity does for Christian theology. I want you to hear what he says. 
The Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. The truth, the Trinity is the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. Well, as we look at the Gospels, we are seeing an emphasis on the Trinitarian person of the Son. He has been sent by the Father to save us. The Son's mission to seek and save those who are lost is on display in the Gospels. The Son's mission to reveal the Father and Himself and the Holy Spirit is on display in the Gospels. And the question we ought to ask is, how does the Trinity shape our understanding of the mission of the Son, and how does the mission of the Son shape our understanding of the Trinity? How is the incarnation, the becoming man, the life, the suffering, and the cross of Christ, how is it beautified by the Trinity? And how is the Trinity beautified by the incarnation, suffering, and cross of Christ? Now, just as an aside, I'm not asking, please hear me, I'm not asking how God changes or becomes more beautiful or adds something to himself through the coming of Christ because none of that happens. I'm asking how he becomes more beautified to us, how we see more clearly who he is. First, let me answer this way. If there is no Trinity, then the Father was not really in a mutually loving relationship with the Son in eternity past. You must have a subject and an object in order to love. If the Son is a creature like God, then he is not in an eternal love relationship with the Father. If the Son is just one of the historical modes of a singular person God, one person God, then there are no distinct persons in God to love one another. The Trinity tells us the eternal Father gave the eternal Son, whom he has eternally loved, for us. That is an infinite sacrifice. That defines love for us. Further, if the Son is merely a creature, then his humility, his suffering, and his death, while nice, while of maybe some moral example value, Ultimately, those things are emptied of their infinite value, the substitutionary value, the paying for our sins. His humiliation and suffering and death for us is at best temporal and finite if he is not the eternal son. Whatever it is, it is not the infinite condescension which we see. We, we do not see Jesus' purchase of grace as being a superabundant grace, greater than all our sin, infinite, unmeasurable grace. It's, it's just some kind of thing that's nice. Further, the Spirit is not God himself. If the Spirit is not God himself, a personally, eternally sent of the Father and the Son to apply all this to us, then we are not indwelled by God himself. We're not united to his eternal Son we aren't overwhelmed by the fact that the Holy Spirit, infinite in his perfections, would voluntarily indwell sinful creatures like us. Rather, if the Holy Spirit is not God, we just have some mystical force who helps us along. 
He's not a personal God. We just have some basis for personal power as we're good at manipulating that force or that energy. But we have not been given new birth into a new creation by the Lord who is the Spirit. We're not given the gift of God himself being with us. We're not communing with the Lord in word and sacrifice, excuse me, sacrament. We, we might be having a nice experience, perhaps even a powerful mystical encounter, but it is less than eternal communion with the Father who loves us, the Son who purchased grace for us, and the Spirit who fellowships with us and applies all this to us. But as I've been showing the last couple of weeks, there is one God and three eternally distinct persons, equal in power and glory. Now, I, I want to get rid of another misunderstanding. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there is a God substance plus three persons. Okay, that makes four things. You follow me? Okay, it's not what we're saying. We're saying there is one God in three persons or three persons in one God. Today, we look at that again by looking at Mark's gospel, and as we do, I want us to see that Mark believed, Mark believed that there is one God eternally existing in three persons. Now, he doesn't use the word Trinity. He doesn't have to. Trinity means threeness. When I recognize there's one God and three persons who are God, I have recognized threeness, whether I've ever used the word threeness or not. I've recognized one person, two persons, three persons. You see how, see how that works? All God, all distinct, but one being. So we're going to look at the Trinitarian doctrine and Christ's mission recorded in Mark. And at the same time, we're going to see that the truth of the Trinitarian Lord beautifies and shapes our understanding of Christ's mission to save and to serve and to restore and to bring in a new creation. In other words, I want you to hear this. It's important. This will move both ways. Who the Son of God is and who he has eternally been is learned from his mission among us as the Christ. And who he is as the Son of God, who he has eternally been, also shapes and beautifies our understanding of his mission among us. And Mark's gospel presents Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And it does so, as it does so, it shows us really both that one, he, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and two, Jesus is the suffering servant who's come to lay down his life for us. And it's this reality that he is the glorious eternal Son of God, and at the same time, that he is the suffering servant that beautifies and shapes our understanding of his mission. So we want to look at this by looking at the prologue of Mark. And remember, when we look at Mark, I'm trying to make two points. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus came as the suffering servant. So look at Mark 1.1. Mark 1.1. You're going to see it right in the first verse. The beginning, incidentally, that word beginning is not just thrown in there accidentally. Mark is pointing you to, I think, the kingdom of God that he's being proclaimed here, i.e. the new creation. He's echoing the language of Genesis 1 and John 1, 1. The beginning, but focusing us on the new creation, of the gospel, the, new, the good news. So gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ, 
Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What's interesting is the new creation is spoken of in Isaiah 65. I want you to tuck that away in your mind for a minute. The gospel is spoken of in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52. Hold on to that for a minute as well. And Mark tells us right at the beginning that he's going to tell us the good news of the coming Lord and servant who is mentioned in Isaiah 40 and in Isaiah 52. His name is Jesus Christ. The Christ promised in the Old Testament, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and he is the Son of God. Most specifically, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Keep that in your mind as well. The Son of God. Jesus is true Israel, and more than that, he is God's eternal Son. So let me summarize what I'm telling you is all in verse 1, because I need to prove this to you. The good news is about Jesus. Now, it's not just about him. This is the good news of, or of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't just about him, but he actually proclaims it. If you look down at verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God is at coming. Is coming. The new, the new creation, the new heavens and new earth is coming. Jesus is both the one who preaches that message and he is the content of that message. It's about him. So let me summarize. The good news is about Jesus, and he's preaching it. And it's about him that he is the promised Messiah, the true Israel, the suffering servant, the eternal son of God. And I'm asserting, I'm asserting that's all packed into verse 1. The question is, can I prove it? As, as we look at this, I want to pick up these two primary assertions regarding Jesus' identity. He's the eternal and divine Son of God. In other words, one being with the Father, yet eternally distinct from him. And he is the suffering servant, the true Israel, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is, in other words, the God-man. And as we look at both of these descriptions of Jesus, I want to see, one, that he is the suffering servant. You getting this? And two, that he is the glorious eternal Son of God. That's it. That's all I want you to get. And that those two truths beautify one another. Necessarily, they shape your faith. So let me demonstrate that. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now notice that word as. It connects you to what precedes. In other words, Mark is about to tell you or provide you evidence and explain what he's saying when he says the beginning of the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I want to explain this to you. In other words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now remember, I reminded you or told you to keep in your mind that the idea that the new creation is coming is Isaiah 65. The idea that the gospel is coming is Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52, that Jesus as the Messiah is all over, as is the Son of God. So we're going to look at this. Now look at what he says is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now you're going to see here that Mark is actually working out three different biblical texts. We're going to have three biblical, different biblical texts. And 
what throws some scholars as they come in here and say, he's working out three different biblical texts. Clearly, how does he not know that, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way? How does he not know those two lines are not from Isaiah? You know, those don't come out of Isaiah. But what does he say? As is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And he points you to Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1, and you say, what does that have to do with Isaiah? Is Mark created an error here? And what I want you to understand is Mark is not creating an error. error sorry. It is, not, it is not unusual for a writer like this to cite the most prominent prophet, nor is it unusual for an author like this to say, I'm going to drive you prominently or, or most specifically to Isaiah. In other words, the rest of the argument I'm making is driving you to my culminating argument, which I want you to find in Isaiah. And that's what he's doing. So look at verse 1 there first, or verse 2, sorry, as written Isaiah the prophet, verse 2, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. I said that's taken from Exodus 23, 20 where the Lord is sending a messenger before the face of his people, Israel. So think about this. In Exodus 23, you have the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, and the Lord says, I'm sending my messenger, my angelos, my angel, before your face. Behold, here's Exodus 23, 20, I send a mess, an angel or a messenger before you, Israel, my people. He's sending them to, to make their way to the promised land. And this citation is enriched, Exodus 23.20 is enriched by understanding that Israel is called in Exodus 4, God's firstborn son. Israel, my firstborn son, is I'm taking out of Egypt, right? And now he's saying to his firstborn son, Israel, his people, behold, I send an angel or a messenger before you. God is sending his messenger before his people, Israel, his firstborn son. This is speaking of Yahweh as the father of his son, his people Israel. And this quotation is driving us to the humanity of Jesus and his federal headship. You know what a federal head is? Adam is a federal head. He represents his, the people. So when you're fallen in Adam, sin, or you know, in Adam's fall, sin we all. You ever heard that? He's our federal head. Christ is our federal head. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're represented by one of them. Now, just as an appeal to you if you're an unbeliever, please do not stand before God in Adam as your federal head. It will not go well for you. Christ has come as a second Adam, a new federal head to save you. And Jesus here is being spoken of as the federal head of the people of God. Adam was the son of God. Israel was the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Now, Malachi 3.1 is about the Lord sending his messenger before his own face. So look at Malachi chapter 3. You're in Mark 1, but just go back two books. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so it should be easy to find. Malachi 3 is the book before Matthew, if you're wondering which is the book before Mark. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, who is speaking here? Yahweh is speaking. 
So I'm going to send my messenger before your face, Israel, my firstborn son. I'm going to send my messenger before my face, Yahweh, the Lord. And look what he goes on to say. He's going to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord himself is coming. The messenger of the covenant is coming. The firstborn son, Israel, is coming. The Messiah is coming. That's what he's pulling all this language together and saying, I'm sending a messenger before him. You think, how is all that convergent him? What's interesting is, notice that pronoun in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before who? Me, the Lord speaking. Now look back at Mark chapter 1. And verse 2, behold, I send my messenger before who? Your face, who will prepare your way. He's speaking here to Jesus, the Son of God. Your way, your face, Jesus. In other words, he's just taken that pronoun me, which refers to Yahweh, and changed it to your, which refers to Jesus. So he's now equating Jesus with the coming of the Lord himself. That this messenger who comes before him is not just bringing some human Messiah, some Davidic king. He's bringing in, if you will, he's coming before and preparing the way for the Lord himself. And Yahweh's messenger is the Elijah to come. We're told that in Malachi 4 is the day the Lord comes. That Elijah himself, if you will, is coming to prepare the way for this messenger. But the pronoun, or this, sorry, this son. But the pronoun has been changed to your because Malachi is focusing, or excuse me, Mark here is focusing you on the fact that Jesus is fulfilling Malachi 3. He is the coming of the Lord. Jesus is now being called Israel, God's son, and also be called, being called the coming of Yahweh himself. Do you hear that? Both of those things are being said of him. Now continue to verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. In other words, that's speaking again. The messenger in verse 2 is John the Baptist who's coming before this Messiah, the Son of God. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Again, John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. Prepare the way of who? The Lord who's coming. The Lord himself is coming. Make his path straight. Now here is where Mark brings us to the culmination of his argument. He brings us to Isaiah chapter 40. So keep your hand in Mark 1 and look to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40 verse 3 that a messenger would come in the wilderness and the messenger would prepare the the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is this messenger preparing the way for the Lord. Now I think it's incredibly telling as Mark is quoting from and driving us to Isaiah 40. Why is Isaiah 40 where Mark wants to drive us? And I think the reason is that Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66 is a section of Scripture prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord, the the restoration of the people of Israel. Israel had been exiled for her sin. Israel was under God's condemnation in 
really Isaiah 1 through 39. Now there are promises of a coming restoration there, promises of a coming Savior there, but not as dominantly as what you get in Isaiah 40 through 66. In Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, this whole section of Scripture is about the Lord coming to restore Israel. He's going to send his Messiah, the suffering servant, and he's going to save Israel, and he's going to save the Gentiles, and he's going to destroy his enemies. The Lord himself will do this work, and he'll usher in a new heavens and a new earth, his glorious kingdom, the kingdom of God. All that's in Isaiah 40 through 66. And we're told in Isaiah that this prophecy is good news, a gospel he proclaims. So look at Isaiah 40 in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Do you hear that? God's ended her warfare. He's, he's pardoning her iniquity. Go to verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness. This is referencing here John the Baptist in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the who? The Lord. All capitals. That is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Prepare the way of the Lord. Who's coming? Yahweh himself, the God of heaven and earth. He's coming. And John the Baptist was preparing his way. Now notice this next text in verses 4 and 5 are actually picked up in Luke. Um, I won't pick them up here, but Luke picks them up. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now listen to verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of what? The gospel. Good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of what? Gospel, of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, what does Jesus refer to himself as? The good shepherd, doesn't he? The Lord is coming. He will be the good shepherd of his people. Look at Isaiah chapter 42. You guys, I could read all of 40 through 66. You'd get this impression. I'm just going to pick out some. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant. Now remember I told you, he is the coming of the Lord and he is the suffering servant. He is God and he is man. He is the son of God and he is the Christ. Verse one, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Don't forget that language because you're gonna see it come up again I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You hear who's coming? This language, guys, gets applied to Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's coming. He's going to be a covenant for the people. 
Look at what it says in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you the suffering servant, the Messiah. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out, of, out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, the Lord is sending his servant as a covenant, not only for Israel, but for the nations. You know Jesus in the upper room, what does he say? As they take Passover, this is the blood of the new covenant, right? In other words, the new covenant's being cut in his blood. He's given as the new covenant. It's not just that Jesus gives the new covenant. Jesus is given as the new covenant. He's the substance of it. Isaiah 44, look there. Again, I'm skipping so much, but Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant. See here, Israel, I said he is the true Israel, his servant, the servant of God, of Yahweh. Oh, hear, now, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the ground, dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In other words, in the coming of the Lord and the Messiah, the spirit is going to be poured out. It's not only the spirit's poured out on him, the spirit will be poured out on his people. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Look at Isaiah 49. It's not just that the Jews are being saved by this servant. Isaiah 49 and verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. In other words, the one who's restoring Israel to the Lord, this servant, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, of him, he says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, that's not enough for you just to save Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This language is all picked up about the Christ, isn't it? He's not only going to save Israel, he's going to save the nations. Isaiah chapter 52, look there. Isaiah 52 and verse, verse um, 6. Therefore, this is the Lord speaking, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, that's speaking of the Messiah, the servant, of him who brings good News, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this one who brings the good news, this suffering servant, he will, we know, learn, he will suffer. Look at Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold my servant shock wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall, shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told 
them they see, and that which they have not been heard, or excuse me, has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, this is the Messiah, he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Do you hear this language? He's not only the coming of the Lord himself. He is the suffering servant who will atone for our sins. The Messiah who will save Israel and the nations. He, he, he is himself the true Israel, the son of God. This, all this, I, you guys, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 65. I mean, I could just keep going. I think Mark is actually hinging much of his gospel around this section of Isaiah. And I think Mark, by pointing us to Isaiah 40 in verse 3, is pointing us to this whole section of Scripture. And he's saying this in Isaiah is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the suffering servant. He is the true Israel. He's not only the son of God as Israel was, but he's the eternal son of God, the one who is himself God. He is the good news. He doesn't just preach it. Look at Mark 1 and verse 4. John appeared, here comes the messenger, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So he's in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. Now look what it says. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. In other words, he's a prophet like Elijah. Now look what comes in. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. As mighty a prophet as John the Baptist is, he's not even worthy to do a slave's task for Jesus, is what he's saying. And he says, I have baptized you with water, but what will he do? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Isaiah 44 says? He's going to pour out a spirit on you. Isaiah 32 as well. Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, now remember this. Here is the person of the Son in the waters being baptized. And he's coming out. The heavens are torn open. You have this theophany as the Spirit descends on him because he, behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I will anoint him or pour my spirit out upon him. His spirit comes on him like a dove, and a voice from, came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I well pleased. Behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In other words, Isaiah 42 is being picked up here. I put my spirit upon him. 
Jesus is the beloved son. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the Messiah whom the Spirit is working in and through to be the servant of Israel who suffers for her and for the nations. He is coming. He is the coming of the Lord himself. He is God and man. He is eternally glorious, and yet he has humbled himself. Now, do I have more evidence of this from Mark? Yes, more than I can possibly do today. I'm only 11 verses in. But, but, but look at verse 12. The Spirit, again, another person of the Lord, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Israel, incidentally, was at the base of the mountain for 40 days. As Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. This is echoing this and picking up the idea that, that Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan in the place of Israel, who was tempted by Satan. Look what it says, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and others is not a good place. And the angels were ministering to him. They're serving him, as they do even at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai as they deliver the law to God's people. The Spirit leads him to repeat the temptations Israel failed to be faithful to, or failed to be faithful in the midst of, sorry. Now look what happens when Jesus confronts evil spirits. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. And immediately there was in the synagogue, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In other words, he's speaking to him as a man. Now listen, have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. In Isaiah, the Lord, our righteousness is the Holy One of God. But now Jesus is the Holy One of God. Folks, we aren't even 24 verses into Mark, and we have Jesus, the Son of God, shown to be himself the coming of the Lord. The suffering servant. More specifically, he is the son of the Father who is God, yet we have one God. Further, the Spirit has been mentioned in the same acts of God. Have you noticed that? Which would assume that the Spirit, that he is also divine. Yet he is not the Son, nor is the Spirit the Father. But there's only one God. And Mark is intensely interested in you believing there's only one God. I want you to hear that. Probably more than any other gospel writer, Mark seems to be, have an extra intensity about you knowing there's only one God. Look at Mark 12, 28. Mark 12, 28. I know they all believe there's only one God you worship. But Mark adds a bit of intensity to his text with regard to the great commandment. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And I was going to ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, he could have skipped to, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he starts with the positive affirmation of the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, that's the Lord, is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Listen, Jesus believed the Lord is one. He was intensely committed to the fact that the Lord is one. You worship only him. Yet, look what the passage that Mark puts next. It's incredibly fascinating. Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, this is in the same temple scene, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? How can they say he's just the offspring, just some human the offspring of David. How can they say that the Messiah is just that? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, notice, Holy Spirit speaking through David, declared, the Lord, this is Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here's the Lord speaking to the Lord, telling him to put all your enemies under your feet. This is the Father We find out later, and we're going to go through this later as we get to Hebrews. This is the Father speaking of the Son, speaking to him. All three persons of God are addressed here. Yet, right immediately following Jesus' strong affirmation that God is one. So Jesus says there's one God and him alone you must worship. And Jesus is saying that he is God, as is his Father. Further, he's saying the Holy Spirit is the one disclosing all this, revealing it. And you might say, okay, so far you're demonstrating that the Father and Son are both persons and yet one God. You're also pointing out the divine nature of the Holy Spirit, but none of this describes the Holy Spirit as a person yet. I would take issue with that. I would challenge that notion. But for the sake of argument, let me show you definitively that Mark believes the Holy Spirit is a person. Look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 28. People are accusing Jesus of doing his work by the hand of Satan. And Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, all all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now catch this. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now listen to the three important facts here. First, you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That means he's a person. You don't blaspheme things. You blaspheme persons. Second, blaspheming this person, the Holy Spirit, is unforgivable. It's an eternal sin. You can only commit an eternal sin against an eternal being. Third, to call the work of the Son satanic, look at verse 30, for they were saying he, meaning Jesus, has an unclean spirit. To call the work of the Son satanic is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Calling the work of the Son satanic. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This means the Son and the Spirit are one. 
Their acts are one. They are distinct persons, but one God. What one does can be ascribed to the other because they mutually indwell one another. They must, for they're one. Now, in the history of theology, we have a big word for this, Greek word, perichoresis. It means mutual indwelling, co-inherence, if you will. They're one. Further, Jesus is the Spirit-empowered Messiah. To call his work satanic is to call the Holy Spirit satanic. You could see why God would not forgive that. The denial of his Messiah. If you don't know the Messiah, you can't have life. You guys hear that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To deny him, to call his work satanic, is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so, you cannot be saved. So here's the point I'm driving at. The good news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The triunity of God beautifies and shapes our understanding of his work. And it does so precisely because we see the Father giving his Son, the Son humbling himself and coming to save, and the Spirit working in and through him, and us to apply the work of the Son to us. Jesus, as the Messiah, the suffering servant, and as the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, came as the one sent by the Father because he loves us in order to purchase superabounding grace for us. And they together sent the Holy Spirit to apply all this to us so that our triune Lord might have fellowship with us and in us. That is the gospel. That's the good news. That's why Mark can tell us when Jesus says, actually quoting Jesus, Mark says, Jesus saying, I did not come to be served, Mark 10, 45, didn't come to be served, but to serve and give, where he says he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. Listen, when you know the Trinitarian Lord, you finally understand the beauty and glory of the cross, and Mark gets that. Look at Mark 15, because we're going to see this Son of God language come up one last time, and I'm going to close here. Mark 15 and verse 33, the, the cross of Christ. Mark 15, 33. And when, when the sixth hour had come, that's noon. They start counting at 6 a.m. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. So there's three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. That's not normal. You know that, right? The Lord is at work here. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemasavachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, sounds like Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him, to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, the, the way into God's presence has been opened by the death of Christ. Now catch this. And when the centurion, verse 39, who stood facing him, he's looking at Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man was the Son of God. Do you, you hear that? When he saw him suffer and die in this way, he knew he was the son of God. That confession is so important that here at the cross, you finally see the beauty of the Trinity and the Messiah, if you will, together. 
Here the Messiah suffers. The eternal Son of God, as the Messiah, takes the sin of the world upon himself. And it's here that the centurion can look and say, truly this man is the Son of God. Now the question is, are you looking at Jesus as the Son of God who humbled himself to be the suffering servant who saved you from your sins? Have you taken in this marvel of marvels so that you can't help but sing the New Testament hymn found in Philippians 2.6? That Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, in other words, the very nature of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he humbled himself. He laid aside divine glory, but emptied himself, laid aside his divine glory and prerogatives by taking the form of a servant. He became a man. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can only sing that if you believe in the Trinitarian Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would in some small way comprehend what it means that you would send your eternal Son to become man, to suffer on our behalf to pay for our sins upon the cross, to absorb the wrath, the justice due to us. We pray we'd understand in whatever just infant way that we can how amazing the love is of a father who would give his eternal son for us. How incredible the grace is that's been purchased by the humiliation of your eternal son. A condescension he was not obligated to provide and yet did. How we are indwelt by your spirit. The Holy Spirit who, who himself is holy and knows we are sinful and yet knowing us still indwells us. And unites us to your son Jesus so we might be saved and we might have fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our one God, our triune Lord. We pray that you would help us in some small way wrap our minds around this and that we would appreciate ever more the salvation that you have condescended to give us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.